Did I cry on the show? Yes, while recording the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode three of the Word of the Witnesses, a 12 Monkeys rewatch podcast. Just a reminder, because we are a rewatch podcast, that means we will spoil literally everything about all four seasons of 12 Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) I am Cece or Tina. You can find me on Twitter at a capital check. And I'm Beep and you can find me at Beepsplain. Just to kick off, we have some really, 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 really exciting news that I don't even know. Uh, Beep, can you just say it out loud? I don't even know if I can say it out loud. I didn't think you were going to be able to put all the words together. Okay. Help me out. So, do you want to go like every other word? No. (laughs) You guys, Terry Metalis is coming on our podcast. (laughs) Claps. That's our guest panelist, Bubbles O' Love, who just also knows how freaking excited we are because we can't believe (laughs) Mr. Metalis is coming on our podcast. So unbelievably nice. So if you don't know, Terry Metalis is the co-creator, showrunner, uh, director of the greatest series finale on television of all time, and writer of many, many episodes. And we are unbelievably lucky, and so are you, that he is coming on our podcast in about two weeks to answer listener questions. So if you've watched the whole series and you have time travel questions that make your head hurt or you want to talk about how much the show made you cry or any question like that, submit your questions to us by Friday, November 9th. You can do that on Twitter. We are at 12M Rewatch Pod or by email, wordofthewitnesses at gmail.com. We'll repeat that again at the end of the podcast, but please submit them by the end of the evening on Friday, November 9th, and we will be compiling all of your questions, and then Terry will be picking the ones that he wants to answer on our podcast. So today we're going to be discussing episodes 102 through 104, and as we mentioned, we have a new guest panelist this week, Bubbles O' Love, or Bubs, as we affectionately call her. Bubs, tell us about yourself. Hi. Yes, my name is Bubbles, aka Bubbles O' Love, or as I explained to the Sephora attendant when giving her my high school Gmail address to receive my sweet, sweet VIB points, the word Bubbles, the number zero, and L-U-V. <laughs> I literally have to do that every time. <laughs> so I don't know what to say about myself. This is the second podcast that I've been on. If you've listened to me, We Geek Again, I might seem familiar because I've guested on a lot of their pods or I'm part of it. I don't really know how to explain that. Anyways, I'm really excited to talk about 12 Monkeys, which I've come to love, love, love. And I really have Capital Chick to thank for all of it because she's the one that kind of started this movement to get us all watching. And I think that we're all pretty grateful for that. Aw, thanks, sweetie. <laughs> we did. We had a lot of basically like private live tweet watches where I would just get like, you know, letters in a row and then exclamation points and then <laughs> yelling at me, why did you make me watch this? And then like, yeah, a lot of that. It was super fun. So, okay. So we're going to ask you the questions that we're asking everybody who comes on the pod. Okay, hit me. All right, first one. Why do you love 12 Monkeys? Okay, so when I was thinking about this, I know that you're tired of hearing about Harry Potter. 
you and your children are tired of hearing of Harry Potter. I'm but actually, and <laughs> thinking only, about... Only because there were like 12 of them <laughs> in the second grade class alone for Halloween. No, we're reading them. We're reading them, I promise. I okay, promise. good, good. Um, so once you do read all of them, I think that you'll be able to relate to this. But one thing that I really love about 12 Monkeys is like how interwoven the story is. And you notice this way more than I do. Like I go back and I'm like, oh my God, that did happen. <laughs> but so in Harry Potter, it has moments like that where in the first book there's this character that's like totally a throwaway character that you don't even think about and then it comes back (laughs) and so there's just like so much thought and care that was put into Harry Potter and I see that with 12 Monkeys so I guess it's just like this phenomenal feels tapestry that weaves together this story and it's just so carefully put together and with love and so I mean yeah (laughs) that's why I love it that was some on point alliteration right there phenomenal feels tapestry (laughs) thank you (laughs) Uh, and who is your favorite character how dare you (laughs) (laughs) I actually this is so hard because I think that another thing that this showed us so well is it gives you so many things to love about each of the characters that it spends time on um And so I think in terms of, like, I do love the comedic relief. So I do lean towards Jennifer. Um, But at the same time, I feel like my heart is with Cassie because, like, she just has to deal with so much shit and she just bears it so gracefully. And, like, it's like I want to be Cassie, (laughs) you know. And so from that perspective, in terms of, like, looking up to her, I think I'd have to say that she is my favorite. And then, of course, I do have the soft spot for the FBI agent. um, (laughs) Whose name I can't remember now. So that's my answer. <laughs> he is a delightful human. Before we jump to the next question, do you want to introduce Emmett's rival for podcast? Can you hear him? Yeah, just because we can hear him panting. So just explain <laughs> that it's not one of us. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Bonsai sounds like he has sleep apnea, but he's just really like chewing on this <laughs> this rawhide that I'm trying to get him to keep quiet. But unfortunately, it's having the reverse impact. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll hear him bark later and that'll be worse. And just so folks can picture at home, what kind of dog is Bonsai? Uh, He is a toy poodle. He is 12 pounds, pushing 13 with all the begging he does for treats. Um, And he's just very fluffy. If you go on my Twitter, um, I think I have pinned a list of pictures as to why he's people. So you can check that out (laughs) and see what he looks like. He's really good at wearing hats. So good. Um, Okay. So favorite moment. Okay, so <laughs> um, this moment unfolded so perfectly perfectly for me. So um, the security footage with Jennifer. <laughs> I, so I'm going to refrain from referencing another show, but there's another show that, like, I have gotten frustrated with in terms of, like, skipping character development, and then all of a sudden a character will do something, and you're like, well, when did that happen? So... Coming from that environment, I got really annoyed when Jennifer came in doing like a a full on like gymnast, professional gymnast, like cartwheel. She was all um, Mission Impossible, basically. And I was like, well, when did that happen? Like, we didn't see this. Yeah, 
basically. I didn't put that together until Tina told me later, but um, yeah, I yelled about Sydney Bristow. Yeah. Oh my god, it was so perfect. <laughs> um, so many of these things, like you don't realize, and then you see the side by side, and you're like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> um, such good callbacks. But so I saw that, and I was like, "Oh, I mean, this is the one thing the show has done that's annoyed me." So like, I guess it's a pass. And immediately after that, it made me eat my words because it just, oh my god, I was like crying laughing because when you see that she's like actually like barely doing somersaults, like cannot do a kindergarten somersault, like, and then like she's like, and then she's a little hedgehog. Oh my god, that's such a perfect, that's such a perfect description. And then she like completely like just. Punches open, whatever. It was not graceful. It was not cute. (laughs) (laughs) And so, seeing that and being like, oh, this show's so smart. Like, this show totally played with me. (laughs) Um, I will never forget that moment. And, like, the next day at work, I was, like, showing all of my coworkers the the gift that Beat put together for me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, of the side-by-side, like, the the imaginary security (laughs) footage and then, like, Jennifer's as a her real life like hedgehog rolling around yeah oh my god it was just so amazing and like I think there's so many deep moments too so I feel bad like not choosing one of the deeper moments but like I just really love the comedic timing that this show has it does it so well yeah no I mean I I think that's probably one of the re- as much as it makes us sob sometimes <laughs> the fact that you have comedic relief where like you just made us laugh so much I was like crying from laughter <laughs> one of the reasons why we love it so much hey sugar makes the medicine go down ah, do you have a favorite episode <laughs> so this is again hard because I think it's for me there's so many more standout moments so that it's hard to pick like one episode that like encompasses um everything um so but I did really like um D-Glock which I'm sure is a lot of people's favorites not to be like a basic bitch but I am a basic bitch <laughs> um obviously like <laughs> Seeing, seeing Jennifer sing pink to Hitler is just, you, no other show could pull that off and have it make sense. <laughs> no other show. But this, it did it like so well. But really what to me brought me to that episode was, um, Jones, because we, everyone kind of, well, not everyone, everyone gets to get out of their box and kind of like, be pushed into these like challenging roles and not that Jones isn't it's what she does is very challenging but she's always been the straight woman the scientist in her lab and so when they push her to be this like actress it was very interesting to see her step up to the plate and just like invigorate like I was just so excited to see her like that and along with Ka- I don't know it was it was very very fun episode on so many levels um so I would say like that's one of my favorites um and the other thing I have to like give a shout out for the episode that centers around Ethan and how he became who he was was just I think we talked about this offline where it was um he's a new character how can you possibly care so much for this new character but I, there's so much anticipation about him and he was such a huge puzzle piece um for the show itself so having it all fall together and you just like understanding how he gets to where he gets it's just it was very very cool and it so many times the show builds up to a moment and it doesn't it doesn't deliver um, and I thought that that um, episode with Ethan delivered so hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember it ended and my husband was like, how did they just make us care that much about Guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> but like, he was such 
such a snivelly ass in, that, in uh, Battlestar Galactica. Right. No, I mean, like, there was definitely a Battlestar joke, but it was just like, what? When have you ever watched a show that far into it and had an episode that was about an entirely new character and you weren't annoyed by that? Do you know what I mean? Because uh, yeah. you're like, well, I want to get back exactly. to the characters I know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I was surprised that nobody mentioned that when we did favorite moments and stuff. Like, I mean, I get it. It's it, in a way, it's kind of a bottle episode, even though it provides mm-hmm. so much mythology. But I thought Thief was incredible. Yep, incredible, so good, episode. so good. I didn't know the episode title name. I was trying to find it, so thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and then the other. Oh, I had one more mention, really quick. Of course, I love the auction episode because it felt like like Ocean's Eleven or like the Italian Job, <laughs> which was cool. Anyways, with even better costumes. Do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? I do. I think about it, and the more I think about it, the more, like, conflicted I get either way. (laughs) But I think that, like, my heart decided for me that she did stop it, because she's a bigger person than I am, and I would definitely not have stopped it. Oh, wait, the (laughs) option... Wait. wait, 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 which is the way the wait, wait. If she stopped the countdown, everything that we saw at the end is real. Oh, I think that she stopped it. I would not have. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So you would be living in the Red Forest. I mean, and. Well, but like, I would know it's the wrong decision. But just like I know it's the wrong decision when I eat Reese's peanut butter cups for breakfast, <laughs> I'm still going to do it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. I mean, I do. I have to say, like, I, I definitely when I'm, uh, it was, it'd be a tough call, right? Like, it's so hard. I think, it and especially hard. the haunting of Hill House is that what it's called? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That actually totally brought back this debate in my head. Oh <laughs> and my god! I think that I think it made it harder for me to say that I would do the right thing, which I think the right thing is to stop the Red Forest. Yeah, so I think that's that's where I stand on that. <laughs> yeah, which we actually should give a shout out to that show since anyone listening has finished Twelve Monkeys. If you are kind of jonesing for a new show that's also really intricate storytelling and uh, actually touches on a lot of the same themes, um, the Haunting of Hill House on Netflix is excellent, so good. Um, I had okay. to watch it during the day because yeah. I don't like scary <laughs> stuff. I did. I woke my kids up one night because I yelled so loud. <laughs> Favorite era for costumes alone, not oh, plot. Oh, God. These questions are just, like, so unfair. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I, – I thought the 80s were hilarious. I think in a flash that's what I enjoyed as a surprise most. But then the masquerade was, like, so phenomenal. And I was trying to think, what were they wearing when Cassie taught Cole how to dance? Which time? Oh, like in a flat, uh, vi- same same episode, vic- like Victorian era. Yeah, so I think well, Cassie always looks so great in red. I think she mostly wears red. Uh oh, <laughs> oh, different theme it. altogether. <laughs> oh, she does always she wear does. red. Oh man. Oh, okay. Ignoring. <laughs> shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. <clears throat> I stand by what I said. <laughs> Whatever she wore while they were while she was teaching him to dance, <laughs> I don't yeah. even care what it was. <laughs> Whatever that was, <laughs> I picked that. Has this show made you cry? <laughs> yes. She meant has this show made you cry today? <laughs> <She was> just- <laughs> I wrote. I wrote. No, definitely not. 
Not one time. Nope. Shut up. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> Don't look. <laughs> Stop emoji. <laughs> um, I get really torn up about like the parent stuff, <laughs> the child parent stuff. That to me, as much as the, the like the ups and downs of the romance, it really like touches my heart. It's not the same as like any kind of like parent child relationship. It just rips me apart. And I don't even have a kid. Well, I have a dog. My dog's my child. <laughs> and I do sometimes, like, cry walking him because I know he'll die someday. <laughs> so maybe that's the part that I'm tapping into. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, so that's you a lot. Really, you, really, you really wouldn't stop the countdown. <laughs> <laughs> my parents will live forever. My grandma will live forever. She'll stop writing me those emails that say, this might be my last year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. Or will she write that forever? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) she'll write it once, but it'll last forever. (laughs) That's okay. So, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's made me cry. All right. So today we're going to be talking about episodes 102 through 104. That's Mentally Divergent, written by Natalie Chides, I really hope that I pronounced that correctly. Directed by David Grossman. Cassandra Complex, written by Rebecca Kirsch and directed by Michael Waxman. And Atari, written by Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett and directed by David Grossman. First, yay, two female writers. <laughs> awesome. And then also, just a shout out to David Grossman, who I know a lot of 12 Monkeys fans who are also big Buffy fans were really excited to see his name pop up. But just in case it hadn't registered, I looked up all of the episodes. David, David, he's directed like a crazy amount of episodes, but they include... Arms of Mine, 100 Years, Blood Washed Away, Memory of Tomorrow, Masks, Thief, Deglaka, Demons, and One Minute More. So, like, Stop. Like, wow. So he's basically like the director patron saint of 12 Monkeys. So let's Jesus. just take a minute to be like this. <laughs> we owe this man some incredible episodes of television. Wow. I'm know. really he impressed. Owes me for some <laughs> tissues. Right? I'm really impressed. Thank you, Mr. Grossman. So our first episode is that we're going to discuss is 102, Mentally Divergent. Um, as always, we like to provide a feels disclaimer in case you are going to watch this after. This episode starts with the original Cassie recording and a close-up of Jones's cigarette, which now makes me think of Jones dying. And so it's a lot right off the bat. And it opens up with um, Jones and Cole looking at the map of all of the outbreaks. And uh, Jones, I guess it's not really like a callback, but it makes you think of at the beginning of One Minute More when they're looking at the map and they're figuring out, oh, of course it's JFK Airport because look at all the cities. It was released for maximum impact. And now when you see Jones and Cole looking at that map, you're like, holy shit, it was them that did it. (laughs) Well, the comment that Jones has there that is incredible that I would have missed the first time through and probably the next three as well was when they're referencing the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, you know, that's what she's looking for. And they're able to clarify that part of the recording. She says, it has always been there. And I'm like, but it's all always been there because we know what she says. <laughs> the entire story is in that recording. You don't even know. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm. It, it, it's a lot. When Jones and Cole are sort of debating strategy, one of the things that Jones says that really stuck out to me was she said, time is cruel. Um, it, 
it's taunting us. And I think that's the first time on the show, it certainly won't be the last, where time is described almost as if it's a character itself, like it's a sentient being of mm-hmm. some sort, which is something the show's obviously going to return to a lot, both not only in dialogue, but with the winking eye, the blinking eye, and certainly with the with the series finale. We see, I don't know if folks had a chance, I actually, like Cassie with her conspiracy board, stopped and took a close look at the article about the JD People's facility and Jennifer Goins, and the title of the article is The Hell Jar which immediately made me think of the Sylvia Plath novel, The Bell Jar, where the protagonist- Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that, but that is so smart. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) No? Really? Okay, well, sorry, I'm 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 totally going to get like English major on you guys. But The Bell Jar is a novel written by Sylvia Plath, who suffered from mental illness and did very sadly take her own life. But the protagonist in the book suffers from mental health issues. She's kind of in and out of institutions. She has to undergo shock treatment, which Jennifer actually mentions in her dialogue um, to Cole when she talks about like the tongue and the flashes through the brain. I kind of took that as an allusion to sort of the the different therapy that she was undergoing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, Although shock treatment actually works. Yeah. I mean, on what? Depression. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, Bubs brings a super science. <laughs> it's only because I read a lot of articles. I don't I have no degree in science except for a minor in biology. <laughs> so <laughs> just want to put that out there to be clear. <laughs> but the other thing that's really interesting that's buried in that article is that it states that women are 60% of that institution and that many are sexual assault victims. And we will certainly circle back to that late in season two with the hyenas episode when Jennifer goes back and breaks um, a lot of these women out and they become her hyenas, their followers that meet sort of their really tragic and untimely death at the hand of the pallid man. So can I just say, though, I mean, especially in reference to this, even if shock treatment works for something – it's it has often been used as a punishment. Yes. And in Jennifer's case, like there was nothing that she needed it for and she was certainly not consenting to it. Like they did it, you know, when she brought up certain things, they would do that so that she would stop bringing it up again. And it also should be administered under general her. anesthesia, but yes, if she's awake then that is punishment. <laughs> yeah, or or maybe they're trying to get out of her the location of the night room. Um so yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know how it was being used, but I, I took from what she was saying to Cole, which we'll talk about later on, that but and and so I was just bringing up now because the novel definitely addresses shock treatment. And so all of those like little nuggets, like sort of foreshadowing of that late season two episode of hyenas, um, and also just sort of the themes of mental illness and Jennifer in the um, in an institution. There's all these little nuggets that are just buried in that like you know quick frame of the article they put together to introduce how they find Jennifer. Um, the other m- early moment before we dive into the big Jennifer and Cole meetup is so you had that like total broing out um, banter between Ramsey and Cole. It's basically like, hey, dude, like, go get laid. And yeah, maybe I'll bang your mom. And it's like, yes, it's like, growing out as you could possibly get. But on rewatch, 
Oh my God. Ramsey makes a joke to Cole saying, maybe you're my father. And then the next person who talks is Jones. And I'm like, it's his freaking grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> the show, I don't know if they knew quite that early on. I, I'm, maybe that's a question that we will ask Mr. Metellus. Um, th- whether we, they knew that Jones, this, I know that they knew when they brought Hannah on that Hannah was his, Mother, but like, did they know this early on that Jones was Cole's grandmother? Because if they did, then that kind of, if that's like a super meta joke about something the writers knew and we didn't, it's phenomenal that they're like yeah. making a joke that you could be someone's father and not know on a time travel show because they actually are going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's like such subtle, amazing foreshadowing if that's the case. But even if it's not the case, the fact that they made Hannah being alive part of the story like that was not the initial plan was done so seamlessly that like I'm inclined to believe that it was always the plan so whatever it was they did an amazing job yeah so um the other little nugget if you pay close attention is that when Cassie is watching TV um and is watching the kind of official cover-up story of Leland Goyne's death on sort of the news scroll at the bottom of the screen is a reference to um, the Wexler leaks um, and the CIA. And so that's teasing once we get to the Chechnya plot, who Cole is going to meet up with um, when the virus is released in Chechnya. So lots of little like clues for people who maybe obsessively pause and take close looks um, at things in episodes. So without further ado, I know Beep is chomping at the bit because her favorite thing to talk about is Jennifer, and this is the big Jennifer and Cole meetup. So I'm going to sit back like Deacon and just enjoy it. Go. <laughs> well, two things that happened uh, right before that. I um, When Cole was being admitted, I noticed this. I had never noticed it before, but um, they you know, automatically said like, oh, you have PTSD, which is obvious but he didn't know what that was and they asked if he had ever been treated for mental illness and he said no and they said there was no previous doctor and like the look on his face was very telling because you know as soon as they said doctor he was like cassie like you could just tell. <laughs> <laughs> like, they also say his aggression is likely due to past trauma which is like a phenomenal description of cole <laughs> in the pilot <laughs> yeah <laughs> because at that is you know he got in he got in there under false pretenses but often like the way cole's acting early in season one is a result of like all the trauma of living in like the post-apocalypse mm-hmm. um also, what's on TV in the, uh, like, rec room, if you will, is definitely, like, reminiscent of the movie. Oh, the, like, claymation, like, creepy. <gasps> yeah, what was that? Ma- somebody actually mentioned this. Oh, I meant to look this up because somebody actually mentioned on Twitter that they, who's currently watching the show, that they've actually seen that entire, I don't know if it's an animated short or what it is. It's, it's interesting because it's a figure, it's a figure wearing a mask. Um, so even early on, we're seeing like a figure wearing a mask. Um, but I forget the name of it. Yeah, me too. I don't know. All right. Jennifer and Cole. (laughs) (laughs) So then we meet, well, we saw her at the very end of last episode, but we, we truly meet the one and only Jennifer (laughs) Goins. She is wearing Brad Pitt's sweater. I don't think it's the exact sweater, obviously, but she's wearing the sweater from the movie that belonged to Jeffrey Goins. His name was Jeffrey, right? I think that's right. Okay, that works. (laughs) (laughs) 
Man, I don't even, I mean, what do you even say about Jennifer? The first thing that she's doing is getting her meds, obviously. Um, she's just, some people, and I'm, you know, getting ahead of myself in a lot of ways, but some people, when they first see her, and even throughout a good portion of the show, are just like, she is nuts. Why is she, like, what's her deal? But the minute that she spoke, I was like, this one is important. I don't know, like, I don't know what it was about her, but I was like, she is so key and not just for this one thing they're about to do. Like, she just somehow is integral to this whole thing. So, of course, you know, her first words uh, to Cole, Tiki Tock, those eyes left, right, swaying like a granddaddy clock. Like, <laughs> um, she already gives him his nickname because she calls him Soulful Otter Eyes. I didn't know that came so soon. Yeah. I was like, what? I did it, not. I don't even know when I finally noticed. I think it was mentioned offline. And that's when I like, I was like, oh, she, yeah, that does get said several times, which was amazing. Continue, oh, sorry. totally. No, the interesting thing there, though, is she only ever talks about the eyes of three people. Huh. Cole, Olivia, and the... um. What am I saying? What's the word? The virus body. What is the meat body? Oh my god! <laughs> so she wow. only talks about the eyes of the two people that are the gins. Yeah. Huh. Holy shit! Because then the corpse. It, that's why I meant corpse. Jeez. Okay. She only talks about three people's eyes: Cole, Olivia, and the corpse. And we know, of course, later on that the corpse is Olivia. Yeah, I was gonna say. Wait, did I not? Did I misremember something? Because I'm pretty sure the corpse is. Oh Olivia. my! Oh my god! So it's like she. Because she's a primary, she's picking up on something with their eyes because both Olivia and Cole exist out of time. Like, they're gins. They shouldn't exist. Is that – because that's making my brain hurt. It's No, awesome. yeah. You just – I that's didn't even amazing. think about that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that makes my brain hurt. That's so awesome. I was just thinking of it as a clue to the corpse being Olivia, but okay, yeah, now you're – now you're going down a whole different road. <laughs> <laughs> right? But that's – so if those are the only two people, and since we know the corpse is Olivia, then the two people she picks up on that she focuses on the eyes are the two people that kind of are – two of the kids that are doing their own thing. <laughs> the two that don't – the two that don't belong that exist outside of that. Ah, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, two of these things are not like the other. Yeah. <laughs> That's creepy. Oh, okay. Oh, Sorry. Jennifer. We'll, I'll stop flailing. Proceed. No, it's amazing. <laughs> you say that, but will you? Will you? <laughs> I meant flail. I meant I'm going to stop flailing just like right now. Oh, okay. okay. There we go. There we go. Yeah, Promises yeah. you can keep. <laughs> yeah. 30 second timeout for CC. <laughs> um, okay. So another thing that, that she says here, he mentions, um, you know, her dad. And she makes this beautiful comment because um, he's like, you're, you're Goins. And she said, I am a Goins or you're Leland's daughter. Sorry. Mm-hmm. She's, he says, you're Leland's daughter. And she said, I am a Goins. I was a daughter. Yeah. <sighs> Y'all mm-hmm. was, ah! is, will be, are. Like, <laughs> what are these words? Oh, my God. Uh, it's like everything she says in this conversation is an Ouroboros. <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything, right? Like, I was a daughter, but she will be a daughter. And what? Oh. And then she'll have the daughters. Like, that's. Yes. God. Yeah. 
So that's awesome. Say the next thing that's going to make us flail. Oh, and you know, as anybody listened last time, you have my favorite line of the whole series, which I extrapolated probably way more out of than they ever intended. But they did call back to it, so it's their fault. (laughs) (laughs) When she hacks up her meds in a very graceful way (laughs) and says, uh, reds and blues, primary, give me yellow, I could paint you the world. Oh, man. Oh, my and God. It, that was so classic. <laughs> it was yeah. so good. And it's interesting because it's like, I, I, you know, it's they clearly it's like one of the few callbacks. And there's so many throughout the show, but that they were actually like, OK, audience, we're going to give you the flashback from 102 <laughs> when she's in the hallway and is holding the yellow chalk after she's written the whole code all over the wall. So, I mean, if you there are so many I mean, the red blues, give me yellow, I could paint you the world. And then when they go into the room, the entire time that they're talking, the symbol of the demon, which is Cole, is in the background. I mean, like, so you have, like, the first time Cole and Jennifer meet, you have this, like, talking about how someday she's going to write the code to delete Cole, and all of the little pieces are just there. So this is just one of these scenes that it just absolutely blows your mind on rewatch. I thought it was interesting that Jennifer wants to know if Cole is real and that she didn't know his name like the other primaries. What do you make of that, Beep and Bubs? Like, have they just been, has she not been as in tune with her powers, so to speak, because people have just been messing sort of with them and denying them and calling her crazy so much all along? I think she probably seen, like, her family could afford all the bells and whistles for treatment. So I don't know if that kind of did blur her ability to see things. Um, like with medication and drugging her. and Yeah, but it also could be that she – her purpose was just so much bigger than so many other people's. And it's almost like how you're better at – like um, you're better at dissecting other people's dynamics and what's going on with them. But when it's like something that you're so involved in, you kind of like lose sight of it. Mm-hmm. So it could also be kind of that is how I sort of took it. Did he tell her his name? In the second, um, this is jumping to the scene when he's tied to the hospital bed. And he says okay. his name is Cole. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and it might just been they hadn't worked out all the primary stuff back then. Um, like at that point. Um, I just thought it was interesting. Like, is she, you know, and, and it does make sense because Jennifer is absolutely like – as you said, Bubs, like she's got a much bigger picture and a much bigger role to play. And then on top of that, like she's been drugged and shock treatment and all sorts of things. And so her, she sort of gains, you know, all the way, like part of the whole story of the show is her sort of gaining command over her, for lack of a better word, like her superpower, <laughs> her primary superpower. So yeah, I mean, we know that her mother tried to drown her for it. <laughs> I mean, we find that out in Bodies of Water. So... Mm-hmm. It's certainly something she would have been suppressing for a, yeah. a long time. She cracks me up, though. Can I please say she just already has, like, random comedic things? Because when they are walking into the room, he says to her, um, do you like numbers? And she's like, I love numbers, especially primaries. And he's like, what about the number 12? And she's like, 12's not primary. And she's like, you're not as smart as we are you. It's okay. It happens a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, her whole vibe. Like, the fact that 
Jennifer is so crazy that she totally weirds out Cole, who's child of the apocalypse. Like he's holding her against the wall and she's like weirdly into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, like she's being threatened and she's like, oh no, I, I like this. That. And his face is like, seriously, what the fuck? <laughs> Um, and then she says, like, oh, your eyes have crazy. Um, it's, like, really interesting. But I th- what I like about this scene is no no matter, like, how manic Jennifer seems, and Cole is definitely, like, a little bit more, because it's the first time he's interacted with her and he's about to, who knows when he's going to split her away, is a little bit more of, like, a blunt instrument trying to get information out of her. He still, like, they have, he listens And they have this, like, connection of sort of, like, mutual empathy because when she's talking about later in the room when he's tied down on the bed um, and she talks about, like, her guilt of, of, like, I've been talking to ghosts and he's like, I would understand that more than you think. They have this – that you know, even though they're separate at that point, those scenes sort of establish these – threads that will go through the whole series is that Cole is the like Cole listens to Jennifer and they have this mutual empathy um and it's all like right there in those first two scenes sort of establishing the beginning of those dynamics in the creepiest way possible yes (laughs) (laughs) while a scalpel is being held to his throat yeah (laughs) I mean who doesn't cut people just to see if they're real I feel like it's completely normal Oh my god. Ipso facto, then you must be real. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. But has Jennifer not been convinced by any number of people? And you know, I always go back to this voices. Jennifer's got so many voices. She's got voices in her head, voices outside her head. We find out even in, we find out very, very soon, like, her dad is paying these doctors to have her kept there. They're being paid off. Like, she is constantly being convinced that she's crazy on top of the fact that she's crazy. So, I mean, it's only, you know, it's like talk about doubling down. She She's constantly being told what's real and what's not. And I don't even think she can sort it out at this point because there's just too many. There's too many voices from too many sources. Right. And when you think about like the um that episode Bodies of Water in season two, when you see Jennifer's childhood room and it's just covered. And and I remember I listened to another podcast and I I'm excited to go back when we watch that episode because apparently there's tons of clues and all those drawings that are on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of different Easter eggs. But you know, it's not only voices, but because she's primary, it's also visions that she's yep. been drawing. So all of a sudden there's this dude in front of her that's other than the pallid man, the only other person that's, you know, been a real person talking about the army of the 12 monkeys. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe cutting him was a little extreme. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she's been – she. this is when she alluded to the shock therapy, though. Like, she was basically saying if any – if she brings up any of this stuff, you know, when he's asking about the night room. And she was like, I can't talk about any of this stuff because – that's when she started mentioning, you know, like the lightning in the brain or whatever it was she said. Like, they do this to her when she talks about it. Yeah. I, the other thing I thought was interesting is, understandably, Cole does not come clean twice that he's the one that killed her father. 
Um, and this episode and the next one, um, where he doesn't come clean about killing, um, Henri, both of those lies are, you know, lies by omission or to come back to haunt him, but, or, or Jennifer is excited, um, in the night, in the night room. Um, but it's like very careful wording, like, oh, did you know daddy? Like, we met. <laughs> and I'm sorry for your loss. She tells him, oh my God. <laughs> Um, and then, I mean, she alludes to it again when he's, like, tied to the bed. Um, but it's interesting because it's sort of like this early Cole-Jennifer dynamic is a little bit, like, she's being a little bit flirty mm-hmm. in a super messed up Jennifer way. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that the show played around with that and they play around with it through basically, like, episode two of season two where it's you're you kind of like as a viewer you're like are they setting up some sort of like love triangle like what's going on is it just unrequited like what's going on here and then they they turn it in such a great way that like no and not only that but she's going to be very good friends with everyone and not like cassie's rival um but there is this kind of weird dynamic with them where it's like super weird flirting yeah like little sister or not little sister like little younger like, if you had a little sister's friend who has a crush on you type thing is what I felt like Cole was dealing with. <laughs> mm, she's, like, the eighth grader and he's, like, a senior in high school. And, and he's just, like, like uh... He's best friends with her brother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And she's super into being held up against the wall. I mean, she's definitely so in love with him throughout certain parts of this show but that's a different story the funny thing is this is already starts coming up where she uses her pop culture references to get out of situations that's the warhols yes I in a band and i opened up for the because she's like oh yeah 12 monkeys that's my cover band in 2009 <laughs> you know we opened for the war and he's just looking at her like what the hell and so she <laughs> she sets off the alarm like that's just how she's so funny that's how she gets out of things oh that's such a great point yes yeah pop culture um armor <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about sort of the momentous Cole and Jennifer meeting, kicking off one of, like, the great TV friendships? Oh, yeah. I have random other uh, Jennifer comments. Uh, she has so much charisma. She does. I think that's she why does. she seemed, like, important immediately, just because, I mean, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't associate her with Brad Pitt's character, um... She still, I think that she still shines. Um, I mean, she is that role. I like, I don't know what else I've seen her in or if I've seen her in anything, but I feel like it's going to be so hard to like see her as somebody else because she just plays Jennifer so well. She is, she is mesmerizing. Although I'll be honest, like I did not know what to make of her um, during season one. Um, I was truly like confounded by her. Um, Yeah. But I think you were meant to be, whereas some of us are a little more demented and we're like, yes, please. <laughs> I think you're meant to be confused by her character and not wishing they would put her on screen every two seconds. <laughs> it did, no, 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 it did build nicely. More. It did. I always wanted more. Like, I was fascinated and kind of, like, mesmerized by her because even just the way that, like, she talked and her mannerisms just were so unique. Yeah, but you you're did like, think, like, it was maybe a gimmick. 
that mm. she was just like this crazy character that would be like kind of funny, but like you could see it like maybe getting annoying and then it didn't. <laughs> and then they just like built upon her. I think it was like for me, what sealed it was um, the uh, what's it called? The car trip. Road trip, road trip. That's yes, what I'm looking for. Yes, in bodies of water. Oh my goodness. That's when I was just like, yes, I'm so here for all of this. <laughs> um, I think mine was when Olivia was brushing her hair. Oh, oh you are a sucker for mother-daughter hair brushes. I, I am. <laughs> I am. But parti- but not when they're being used to manipulate someone. I don't like that. <laughs> but I just felt so much... Just like empathy for her and, and, and also just aghast at it being used to like manipulate her when it was clearly something <laughs> that she was so yearning for. That I that just... e- well, that even calls back to this episode. I was a daughter and she's right. like, don't you want to be a daughter again? I mean, uh, it's, oh gosh. Uh, it just broke my mom heart a lot. Uh, I know. Other random, um, <laughs> I just can't help but do it every time I see them now. She said that she's been, um, you know, in the institutions, she said 70, 773 days locked in a cell apologizing to ghosts. And I just wanted to point out that 773 is a prime number. <laughs> I'm so excited uh, that we have a one-time math teacher on our podcast <laughs> to point out all of the numbers. It's like your superpower beep, and I love it. Yes. Um, I just can't help it. I'm like, you know, because you realize this – well, never mind. I'm not going to say it right now. I'm going to say it and then I'm going to cut it. 607 is the room number at the Emerson. And it's also what Ethan says, 607. That's how many times I tried to save Eliza. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead and suck on that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do, Beep. You just like lob these like feels grenades and then you just walk away. That's how I roll. I'm a a lobber. (laughs) So this, this... This is the first episode where we meet the pallid man. Oh, man. Ugh. Oh, my God. In the creepiest possible. Like, and so what I wanted to try and get at is other than killing people and putting flowers all over them, which is super <laughs> fucking oh my creepy God. and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not enough. Like, At the same time, I was like, I love the smell of jasmine. <laughs> wow. Do you still though? <laughs> I d- I honestly do. I was like, well, if I have to find a dead body, let it reek of jasmine, <laughs> just to like make it more bearable. Because as I've said before, I did work in a cadaver lab for two weeks, and that smell has haunted me my entire life now. <laughs> so jasmine. Hmm. So rather, maybe instead of um. What makes the topic I was going to propose is what what is the essence of what makes the pallid man so creepy? Really, Bubs, maybe it's why do you enjoy him so much? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just why I love his artistic character. <laughs> he, I feel like it merits. He is so fucking creepy. So can we try and like list all the reasons why he's creepy? Like this is the first time we meet yeah. him. And at the end of this episode, I was terrified of him. Terrified. <laughs> and I'm trying to get it like is it the polite, calm and cheerful yeah. demeanor? Yeah. I think so. I think it- he's so unaffected. That's the word I would use for him. He's just like going on about his like la-di-da business. Like he yeah, he just reminds me of, God, two things I can't spoil. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, he it's it's the domesticity of sociopathy where it's like something so next door can be so horrifying and it just kind of makes you feel uncomfortable no matter where you are because you know that that kind of careless killerness um can just exist right next to you and you'd have no idea. Oh, and like that's so suburban hat, the fucking hat, <sighs> like the silhouette of the hat, like well, right, and like and the have you whistling. heard the Slender Man thing? What like the Slender Man? Um, what's the word? Uh, urban legend. Um, the Slender Man who who kind of like haunts children, and he's like very tall, very slender. Obviously, um, he kind of. If the Slender Man was just, like, a man, like, that's exactly how I'd picture him. You know, kind of, like, walking through the shadows. You see him, he looks normal, but you get that, like, super eerie vibe, and it just kind of, like, unsettles you. Oh, and it's so so interesting because also, you know, now when you rewatch and you have in mind – he it's it's interesting in this scene when Cassie finds um like first meets him at, like over I'm forgetting his name but the um her father's friend who w- had worked in uh, for the CIA that was helping her research um he's 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 we- weirdly constrained <laughs> he's like weirdly constrained you know he doesn't just kill Cassie um and it's a little bit unclear to me, and maybe it'll become more clear as we march through season one. When does he know? Like, when do they have? They don't have the word of the witness yet. No, they do because they had the word of the witness in 1989. Mm-hmm. So they know he. They know like if they know her name enough to follow her, then they know that she's important. So is that why he's restrained in terms of? Like, okay, I believe you that you don't know where Cole is, which is interesting because I assume that he knows who Cole is by being important because they have both access to Ramsey and the word. No, not yeah, I was going to say they have Ramsey right now. Kind of. I mean, however they you do. Right. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they grab Ramsey in 1987. Yeah. Oh, that's true. So they have Ramsey at that point. They have. They have the word of the witness. So they grab Ramsey in 1987, or I forget how much time precisely he spends in prison, but they grab him. Is it three years in prison? Yes, I want to say that's correct. Um, but so they have Ramsey as of this point. They've had him for over a decade at least. Um, and they have the word of the witness. So they know that Cole and Cassie are important. Now, the pallid man doesn't – later on when he meets Cole, he doesn't know who Cole is until Cole – says his name. Um, but in this moment, when he's asking Cassie, where's Cole? He's already met Cole because he met Cole in Haiti, which is right. why he has the scar on his cheek. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of things to like peel away, particularly when he's showing restraint. Um, and, and it's kind of like he doesn't, he doesn't, he lets Cassie go that time. He shoots at Cole, but then he leaves him at the end of the episode, just sort of in a fight with his henchmen. Um, so it's just interesting to peel back, like, what does the pallid man know at this point? And at this point, he knows from the word of the witness and Ramsey that Cassie and Cole are important. Um, and he has met Cole, even though the audience doesn't know that yet. Um, am I, am I getting that all right? Like, am I thinking that? through correctly yeah i think so i think so yeah and then the other thing that i thought was interesting um about the episode um was the whole cassie and cole meet up in the hospital is just 
phenomenal. Like Cole's face when she comes through the elevator is like the clouds parting. (laughs) And I mean, maybe in part, I mean, he was kind of angling at the beginning of the episode, trying to get Jones like, well, you know, uh, maybe I could get into the mental institution with the help of that very pretty and clean doctor. (laughs) So, but that's on the one hand. The other hand, like Cole at that point, I mean, he's eventually going to get splintered away, but he's like, kind of fucked at that point. He's being taken away from the facility where Jennifer is. He's being transferred. And if Cassie doesn't show up, he like, it's kind of, you know, it's that, that whole mission would have been a failure because they wouldn't have like put those pieces together, which he actually does with Cassie that like, oh, that means there was a scientist that left the night room and that's who we can track down. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but her whole, like his whole face when she's like, smooth as hell with her like cover story and is like yeah I'm his doctor she's like throwing (laughs) fancy like contagious disease like terminology at the guy encephalitis oh my gosh it's so good but that fight that they have in the hallway like one of the things and we've talked we've touched on this sort of our last two episodes but one of the things that I love so much about all of the female characters on the show but particularly Cassie is when he's like, this is my mission. And she's like, uh, no, <laughs> you don't get to say that anymore. And she's like, stop with your paradox bullshit, Cole. And like, yeah. listen to me. And she's just basically like, no, you don't get to tell me that this isn't about me and this isn't my mission. Um, and it's just a really great, like that mini argument and then ending with the end of the episode, which we can get to like Cole and Jones's conversation in a minute, but that end of the episode of the uh, we like, okay, we'll do that. And she's like, we, and then we get the first, like, just pause for the feels. We get the first see you soon. Yeah, um, from him to her. From him to her. Ah, um, <laughs> it's like a, it's, it's establishing sort of the terms of their equal partnership that they're in this together and this is their mission. Um, both in the dialogue and the way that they together put the clues. Um, Cassie kind of putting it together saying it's a scientist and, Ka- and Cole having extracted that information from Jennifer. So it's kind of like firmly establishing from now on this is going to be <laughs> at least for season one, um, partnership <laughs> working together, like for the mission. Did you feel like she was acting like an attorney? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I is, you're saying that's why I loved it so much. No, um, I mean, when she came to get him, though, like she just, <laughs> I don't know. It was just funny to me because she was like, "I need to have a moment with my patient," and I'm like, "What? <laughs> that's how that works." <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but if I, I mean, you know, she was in a suit and glasses and asking to talk to her uh, patient slash client. So I was into it. Yeah, it um, seemed very, very attorney-esque <laughs> to me. I didn't know if you uh, – well, how about this? It seemed very TV attorney-esque to me. <laughs> Which is great because Amanda Schull plays a TV attorney <laughs> on another show. Wait, um, she does? Yeah, she's on Suits. <gasps> oh, that's right. I, not, I must have not seen that season. I haven't either yet. I love Amanda Schul, but I generally can't watch legal shows. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I don't enjoy – it's not escapism. (laughs) Also, they get everything wrong and you just (laughs) – Well, I don't know if Suits does or not, but um, a lot of other shows do. I also want to point out that when Cassie – in the middle of their little uh, tiff at the hospital – 
you know, she's like, I could have helped you. Like, what's going on? And he says, there's someone here, someone important. So, like, another, they dropped it in there again. Like, he's, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, foreshadowing Jennifer. Mm -hmm. It's not just she's important, like, right this second for this one thing. Like, someone important. Right. Not someone with important information. Right. Someone important. Right, it's a flag to that. How many more times do you think I could say that before it gets really bad? <laughs> I will be into it every time. Just putting it out there. Um, the last scene I just wanted to flag um, is the conversation at the end between Jones and Cole. Um, because it's also important. It's number one, important for their relationship. And then number two on rewatch is, is just has some moments that you kind of like fall back in your chair. Like, oh, my God. Um, is it because she's his grandmother? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not just that. Beat. Um, well, they're. They're having it's it's like this episode is different people, different characters kind of working out now that the mission isn't what we thought and it's going to be ongoing. What are going to be sort of the working terms of our of our relationship? Mm-hmm. So Cole, like they have that meeting with all the scientists and Cole like looks like he wants to hit his head against the wall when they're all arguing. And then he kind of pushes back and it's like, I'm not your soul. You know, she clears the room. I'm not your soldier. And when Jones says, what would you be had I not given you this mission? Um, Cole wouldn't exist <laughs> without Jones. So like even putting aside the fact like, it, you know, it's his grandmother, but like – he wouldn't exist if it wasn't for her. Um, so there's this whole level to that conversation now that just is kind of like, oh, my God. Um, but also, I love sort of that, you know, you need to tr- – they're talking about what their goals are, like, and and Jones is sort of – it's kind of one of the first times we've really heard her talking about – the world that she remembers and she remembers the people that were lost and you and I both, that's what we're trying to get back. Um, which is interesting the way she states that as both their motivations. Cause I, I'm not sure that's quite, that's, I'm not sure that's quite Cole's motivation. I mean, I think he at this point is, I mean, it may be in the abstract, but I think he's hoping for redemption, um, and sort of reset, but that whole like, Jones saying you need to trust me and Cole being like, well, then you need to trust me. It's also sort of a foundational conversation going forward that the two of them kind of working out what their partnership is going to be, which is obviously also going to have its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Did you guys have anything else you want to discuss about that episode? Uh, Random thoughts. Jones says in that conversation that she was 37 when the plague hit. And that originally was in 2017. So I realized that she was born in 1980, which just feels weird. (laughs) Oh, man. Because <laughs> she's, like, 63 now, you know? I mean, that her primary, like, uh, location is our future, but you feel like you're just watching it now. So you're like, wait, she's 30. So, like, that's close to my age. <laughs> it's weird. Just don't think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And she's forever bringing up. It's interesting that she keeps doing it because we don't find out until one twelve that she – you know, had met them and has already been back. But she, every chance she's get, she's bringing up how casserole is a problem. So is that a hint to him or is it a larger hint to the audience about how much casserole is a problem? Except that they're not really a problem, right? They have the witness. But they don't. I know, but they do. But they don't because he's not the witness. (laughs) But they do. (laughs) What? (laughs) 
<laughs> they don't. I mean, you can argue. I mean, coal's the problem. <laughs> but oh yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, it's it comes again though. Even Jennifer makes the comment at some point, you know, or was it? I can't. Well, oh no, no, no. Yeah, if if you're talking about the Jennifer quote about the two of you being might be the end of the world, and at the at the end of season two, you think it's the witness, right? But now on rewatch, oh, you mean because of the red forest? Sure. <laughs> yeah, because that quote now makes me be like, oh, no, it, it, them being together is the end of the world because Cassie chose to end the world because of Cole. Mm. Ah, yeah. Okay, I get what you're going. Yep, I'll cut uh, that. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the other thing that's interesting, it's it's really interesting that Jones is so fixated on keeping Cassie out of the mission when she knows that the only reason why Cole is going to survive in Paradox is because Cassie comes to find her. So it's kind of interesting, like, thinking about, like, I, I mean, maybe it's just the jo- Jones being Jones being Jones and worried about causality and the more that you interact, the, right. the more uh-huh. ripple effect that's going to have. But those interactions are the reason why Cassie is going to find Jones and Jones is going to save him. Um. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting, like, picking through those threads. Okay, so next episode is 103, Cassandra Complex. And I know Cece has a lot of thoughts, not only about the character Cassie itself, or herself, Cassie herself, but also the name Cassandra that was changed from the movie. Yeah, so I've totally, sorry, totally geek out about this. I went down... um, I don't think an unwarranted rabbit hole, considering the name of the episode, is Cassandra Complex. Um, but, I mean, just going to, which we mentioned in a past pod, but the name Cassandra um, coming from the Iliad, where she is the daughter of, I've never, is it Priam or Pri- I always, like, basically always tried to avoid saying that name, like in English class, um, but the King of Troy. And <laughs> Apollo, Apollo um, was struck by her beauty. She refuses Apollo's romantic advances and he places a curse on her where he gives her the gift of prophecy, but the curse that no one will believe her warnings. Um, so sort of the most obvious uh, application um, to Cassie is Cassie knows the apocalypse is coming. And then you see throughout this episode, particularly, like, for example, when she has that conversation with Aaron in his office, um, people don't believe her. Um, and we know, based on the pilot, that that's just going to continue on from this time period to the point that she's no longer going to be practicing medicine. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is in this episode, she knows about the plague, but she's – so she's right in terms of the big picture – but she's wrong <laughs> when it comes to the particular outbreak that's in Haiti. Um, so it's just kind of like this like spiral of thinking about how that Greek myth and that character from the Iliad applies to sort of the Cassie in the show. The other thing that I – so Cassandra complex actually is also – and I, this is basically just like me going down an internet rabbit hole. Um, but it – it is, and I've heard it like discussed sort of recently, just like in the media with, but it's both a psychological term and that somebody tries to explain sort of the um, source of their like physical or emotional suffering. And then they're disbelieved um, when they try and share that. And I think it's interesting because there's a lot of different conversations in this episode that are, I think, 
you understand why the speaker, whether it's Aaron or whether it's her boss at the CDC, you understand why people are sort of like, girl, you need to get your shit together. But on the other hand, they keep telling her like, well, you just need to deal like with what happened to you with this kidnapping. Um, and it's just it like it just kind of makes my heart hurt, you know, that like the like the burden like not only is she dealing with something that was like an incredibly scary thing to happen to anyone but like particularly for a woman to be like kidnapped and held at knife point but then on top of that all this crazy shit that happens like where somebody disappears in front of you and tells you the world's gonna end um but just sort of the way people like my heart just kind of hurts for her a lot in this episode um and the way that people are just sort of I understand why they're saying like your behavior is does not seem proportional like to what happened to you, but at the same time, like watching people saying that, and particularly men saying that to a woman, and like how she's dealing with something that happened to her, it's just kind of painful to watch oh, throughout the episode. It's so painful, especially because um, we know that we know what she saw, and so um, to kind of have that on your shoulders, where you can doubt yourself. And second guess, like what you're seeing, um, but that might mean the you know the world dying. <laughs> so you have very little time to kind of make the decision as to how you're going to react and what you're going to do. Um, I think that that's really difficult. It's I guess like it's that like ongoing battle with yourself as you're growing up and you get better at it with age. But it's like, do you speak up? If you see something, do you say something? <laughs> Um, and so I think from that perspective, I think it's like so relatable that like, it could mean the end of the world. And and in the episode, you don't know, just by like, yeah, we just like reviewed the timeline and like, yeah, it doesn't seem likely that this would be the world ending virus based on the timeline that we were given. But again, we don't know. (laughs) Uh, It could be. And if it, if that's the case, then yeah, um, shooting people who are leaving quarantine is you know, it's not too extreme. Um, as we saw, I don't know if you guys saw Outbreak where they're like about to blow up the city because, oh, yeah. uh, and so it's, it's like, you're just like on that line, like, what do you do? And so it's so hard to see the way people react to her because she's so trying to be strong and stand with like what she's seen and what she knows. And she knows that like the entire world could be hinging on how she reacts in this situation. So, God, it's so hard. But the the hard thing for her, too, is so she has the trauma, right? She has the the weight of, like, being directly involved in this situation. But she's also – she's like a secondhand prophet. Yeah. So she also has that issue of, like, questioning herself. Yeah. You know, of, like, okay – I know, but like, do I know? But do I know? And like, how, you know, so she's not only fighting with like, do I tell them? She's like constantly, you know, as um, stubborn as she is, I think she's also constantly questioning herself. Yeah. Right. I mean, at the end of the episode, you see her looking at the scratch on the watch, um, which we had like talked about before. That's like the permanent reminder that like something crazy did happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And she does that at the end of the episode, which the end of the episode just breaks your heart when she's sitting there. I mean, that scene at the end, which she's, you know, the, the CDC doctor basically is like, go home and get your shit together. And she's crying. And Cole is watching her and seeing, 
you know, he presumably he overheard that conversation and then he sees the effect that that first meeting that they had and all of this, you know, had on her life, which was only alluded to in the hotel conversation um, in the pilot, which I think like from that point on, like the, the sort of the, the running thread of Cole's guilt about the impact that he had on her life and what he did to her life, I think really starts at this scene where he's watching her just completely like breaking down and crying alone. Like it just, it's like heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking. Like not only for Cassie, but also because it's just going to be sort of this thing that, that they're constantly trying to navigate that dynamic between them. Like what, what does she claim agency for and what's his fault? Yeah, you're right. Because I think up to this point, I mean, we talked about this before, everybody has choices and they want to cling to those choices because it's the only thing they have control over. But up to this point, everything that's happening around Cassie is more happening to her because of him. Like we're still at that point where she doesn't have a lot to do with it. Right. All she's done is believe him. Yeah. And all, and then that belief has turned her into this, you know, like the Cassandra of the Iliad where nobody believes her and it it is coming. Like she's wrong in this particular instance. But it is coming. I mean, and the other thing that I think is really interesting with the conversation, even at the beginning of the episode, it certainly comes home at the end. But Cassie and Cole are throughout this episode are not, are totally not telling each other the whole story. Right. right. So like in the car, she's like, oh, yeah, I, I knew that Dr. Henri, like, you know, I knew him for two days and then whatever. Like, it's no big deal. Like. <laughs> she's leaving out some pretty important details about her and Henri. When I they're mean, in Haiti. but they're not important what? to him. No, but it's somebody that had like the fact that she found out. Like, I'm not, I'm not even like alluding to that. But she knows him better than just like a work colleague. And when she finds out that he's died, it impacts her. I think in a in a way that like maybe is more than if it had just been like somebody that you were working next to in a tent because she had that personal connection to him. Um, Before we jump into the Haiti, we have to do, we have our recurring um, Cole enjoying new food and drink watch. (laughs) Um, And he discovers General Sal's chicken, which like, God, if you would come from the apocalypse, that would be like one of the greatest tasting things ever. Okay, Um, but the way he holds a fork, I just... (laughs) I cannot. Well, even before the fork, like the fact that he's, it's just one of those scenes again where he's like holding a takeout food and he's just like eating with his hands and her face is just like, oh my God, Uh, here, I'm going to, I'm going to subtly hand you a fork. (laughs) And then like the whole explanation as to what it is. And she's like starting to make fun of like what he doesn't know. Like, yes, we, you know, we uh, have people who like deliver like, you know, who, what's the line? Like, are dedicated to like the deep frying chicken. Yeah, <laughs> he is a general sauce. of chicken. Yeah, it's like just that. like, it's, it, I love the like banter in this. Um, he like, he wasn't sure she was joking for a second. He was like, wait, and he like waited for her to smile. It was so, it was cute. And it's like so pure his relationship with food because we know, I mean, it's like, I didn't even think about it until he was eating that cheeseburger. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, what is he eating? Rats over there? And, like, now he can, like, partake in, like, (laughs) 
five guys and like in and out and shake shock i don't know <laughs> i would be i would like be like fuck the mission i am gonna go eat food <laughs> um once we do get to haiti um i think it's interesting when cassie is doing her research um on the laptop on the bed um we see our first i think it's our first plague mask of uh-huh. the show i didn't notice um <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's not, i'm here to pour over those details thank you so much <laughs> um but i think it's also interesting Henri's story about how he became a doctor is very similar to jones's story um of how why she invents time travel um yeah. you know his sister dies of measles and then he decides he's gonna become a doctor and then his quote is Anyone who tries to change nature is kidding themselves. It doesn't break, it bends. Which is interesting if you swap nature for time, but basically, you know, he is motivated by the death of somebody he loved to try and do something about that in the future. Um, and that line just stuck out at me in thinking about, you know, time, nature, space on the show, bending and not breaking. We will actually get to the point where it's breaking. Well, but um, yeah, but if but something bends, bends enough, it makes it loops. It bends. <laughs> no, I mean, I see like, I see, we're not talking about the finale, but I see like the ultimate um, story under is that it, it did bend. It didn't break. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, yeah, and I, it's, it's like the, the pink song. <laughs> We're bent, not broken. <laughs> Such a great yeah. duet, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Just I, give I me do. a reason. Yes. Oh, I love that song. Um, and then um I there's some great um just sort of like interactions with like the pallet man being like, um, who are you? And Cole being like, You don't know who I am, but you will. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> Oh man, you belong to a cult that worships the son of this man. You sure will. <laughs> like, uh, um, so I wanted to ask really quickly, sort of, you know, you have this scene at the end where we learn, like, it's it's really interesting. I think how they framed it. Like, it's, I mean. I just noticed sort of the lighting, you know, when they're practicing shooting at the end of the episode and they're outside and it's beautiful and the whole scene is like bathed in light and the whole interaction between them is, again, another another conversation that's sort of pregnant with the things that people are not saying. Like Cassie's like, okay, well, what did you see? And Cole's like purposefully withholding, oh, yeah, I saw you, but I kept my distance. And he's not letting her know that he saw her getting reamed out by her boss and then crying afterwards. Um, but also, obviously, like, the big thing he withholds, which will come back to roost in the night room, is that he was the one that killed Henri. And there's, like, very interesting editing, like, at the beginning of the episode where she's talking to the doctor and the doctor tells her, he died, you know, Henri died. And she goes, oh, God, that's my fault. And he's like, no, it's not. And then the scene immediately cuts to Cole saying, I need to talk to him. Um, mm. And then at the end of the episode, when he withholds this, it's it's a really, man... It's a doozy of a lie Um, because the whole thing is she's caught up with it being her fault and it's not her fault in the way that she thinks it is, but in some ways it is because she's tied to the mission and what Cole was doing. Um, Right. She identified Henri and sent Cole there to talk to him. And of course, you know, whatever decision Cole makes at that point is his own, but she was the one who 
right. kind of looped him into all of it, even though he was obviously a member of the uh, team that was originally in the night room. She was the one who, who dug up that fact. Right. Well, she fan. She's right. Uh-huh. So it's this really interesting sort of like onion to unpeel uh, like layers of what's what she thinks is her fault. And it is kind of her fault, but not for the reasons at that point that she thinks. Um, but what why do you think do you think it's the guilt or is Cole also worried about what she will think about him because she knows sort of where she's at in terms of her moral compass? Why do you guys think he decides to not tell the truth in that moment? Uh, I think it's everything, basically. I mean, the pragmatism of he still wants to work with her. Well, pragmatism and romance. <laughs> he still wants to work with her and um, cluing her into the fact that he is why Henry is not there anymore, I think is, yeah, I mean... I think it partially. Yeah, I think that's bad on a personal and a business level. Like he could easily put her off the mission entirely. Yeah, yeah. I think every and angle then, is bad. Huh. And then, how do you guys? So this is one of you know the pilot set up the one versus seven billion with Leland Goines, and I don't know. I. I, I my guess is that at least in the pilot, most people were probably like, okay, this Leland Goines guy seems like kind of a dick and <laughs> he owns the lab that's connected to the virus. And although like I agree with sort of the principle generally that like Cassie's expressing in the pilot, I don't think like – I don't know if like Cole killing Leland Goines really hits you in the gut the way that this episode delivers this like – gut punch at the end okay we're giving you another scenario of one versus seven billion like this guy Henri knows like how to lead people to the night room where the virus is we know that the pallid man like they've set him up as someone who's ruthless and is never going to give up and has resources and means to like manipulate i mean he even says in the episode like police like you know there's nowhere that Henri is going to be able to go where he's going to be able to escape them but i feel like this episode purposefully makes you far more uncomfortable with cole's choice to kill him one versus seven billion than it did in the pilot yeah i was curious what you guys thought about that I, i think it's part of his journey um as a character because uh, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but we lead into Antar- um, Atari. Um, I almost said Antari. Atari. Um, and we kind of see his ability to go down that dark path. Like, he's capable of it, 100%. Um, so it's setting up the fact that he has to choose who he is, whether he is um, just the mission or if he, if there's nuance to who he wants to be. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what it's setting up. I don't know. (laughs) I think that this episode really upped the stakes on several different fronts because now instead of like in, you know, in the pilot, it was like this one guy, he is the one that released the plague. Let's kill him. You know, he's guilty. Like, yeah, like you said, Tina, I don't think a lot of people had a huge problem with that. But now you've got competing sides here because obviously Henri is not guilty but now, in, like, we don't know who released the plague, but we do know there's a group after him that wants to 
Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, he's in this weird, like Henri is in this weird middle place. And I think now things have become so uncertain that, you know, he's just a variable that Cole couldn't abide. Right. Like Henri, in this case, in this sort of moral dilemma, Henri is more collateral damage. Like he Absolutely. has mm-hmm. knowledge and that knowledge could potentially result in the death of 7 billion people. And you're confronting a foe that is relentless and has the resources to find him. But at least I personally, like at the end of the episode, feel really queasy oh, <laughs> when you yeah. watch, right? Like Cole mm-hmm. pulling that trigger because they're starting to play with this dilemma that they're going to throughout the series about one versus seven billion. And they're going to eventually bring us around. I think the reason why most people are happy with this finale is because Cole means like serious finale is Cole means so much to the audience that we're like, thank God that Jones saved him. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite the potential risk that she didn't know um, of what that could do. Um, And so I just like in terms of like the moral dilemma, this one is a lot more gray and a lot more messy. And it's something that the show is going to play with, with Jones and with Ramsey and Mm -hmm. Cole and Cassie and like just throughout the whole series. And this one definitely doesn't sit right (laughs) at the end. Even if I understand strategically, I understand why Cole does it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that the show starts to delve into whenever you elevate you know, the idea of the one versus 7 billion, we have that all throughout one versus 7 billion, one versus 7 billion. And like, sure, mathematically, that makes sense. And each person we've talked about too kind of depicts their side based on the one, but it also kind of begs the question from, from the, from the perspective of like time or the greater perspective, you know, of, of not your one, the question is, does the one have value at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, it does. And I mean, and and by the way, I mean, I think most people would adopt, I think if you put the question like to like 20 people on the street and you ask them sort of that utilitarian dilemma of one versus seven billion, I'm guessing that like most people would say, okay, but there's certainly like moral philosophies and viewpoints that would say, no, it's never okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so – um, I really like one of the reasons, particularly on rewatch, when I, one of the reasons, not only for sort of Cassie's character development, um, that I love this episode is it is, they're going to do it again with Jones when she's at Spearhead. It's one of these like moral dilemma, dilemmas that the show poses that really makes the audience uncomfortable with something that I bet most people pretty comfortably accepted in the pilot. Absolutely. Um, and then just to close out, I mean, I mean, we didn't talk a lot about, but this is obviously where the West Seven with Max um, meeting up with Whitley and with Ramsey. This is when they first get introduced. But the big, you know, on rewatch, the big sort of gut punch at the end is Deacon being introduced while sharpening his knife. <laughs> ah! <laughs> uh. And just, like, Max being like, I found him, I found Cole. And then, like, his, like... That devilish smile. Devilish Ooh. grin. Even though, I'm sorry, but, like, Deacon is a dick. Oh, he's the worst. <laughs> At this point. He, he's the worst. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
He's the worst. But we'll get into that when we're about to get into. But I just love that it ends like the first I had forgotten that that first image that we had ever gotten of Deacon is sharpening his knife. And just thinking about how the show ends and how important that knife is going to be. Um, it's just such a brilliant character introduction when you see it on rewatch. And what if when he was doing it this time, he was just thinking about Jennifer giving it back to him? Oh, my God. Oh, burn. <laughs> She loves a feels grenade. <sighs> last thing, yeah, last random thing in that episode is uh, the tiger shirt that Cole wears all throughout it, which obviously looks 100% ridiculous, is uh, an homage to the one that Bruce Willis wore in the film ah, when he was in disguise. <laughs> that explains so much. It's not just James Cole vacation wear. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's really like, I was like, oh, it, it, that, that's an interesting choice. all right so that brings us to episode 104 atari atari is to me sort of the first episode where i felt like the show was having fun playing with time travel and what that could do to like the plot of an episode um kind of like later episodes like after um or ouroboros where the characters are having to work around themselves mm-hmm. like in a day that they've already lived but before we get to that just a shout out to one of my favorite props of the whole show which is cassie's conspiracy board with the red string <laughs> which she worked i didn't remember how small it was i know it does seem <laughs> I feel like mine would have taken up, like, an entire side of the building. Yeah. (laughs) She has, like, two cork boards. (laughs) We just talked about how complicated it was. So, yeah, it would have been, like, at least a whole wall. Well, there's a lot of – I mean, you've got got the conspiracy board that's, like, back at – headquarters (laughs) headquarters <laughs> project split that's a real one yeah. yeah yeah exactly but i feel like for one person working on it i mean she got red string she got thumbtack i mean the whole thing like she worked really hard on it so i just want she to went to michael's shout out for her <laughs> conspiracy board she oh did wait to michael's um, i meant to like say something about the last episode really quick because it it reminded me of like another kind of sort of subtle foreshadowing the whole like sun flare-up thing that had Cole kind of like bouncing around. Um, that I, I don't know if that was like the idea for the suit that end up, ended up being made. That reminded me of the splinter suits too. Like he was trying to fight this in this way, it wasn't working. And in those, you know, they become very adept at it. But yeah, he's yeah. Like fighting and like disappearing in and out. Well, because he wasn't in control of it, but it, it's like this. I'm sure it's like the same principle, which I was just like, oh wow, they're already like playing with the whole, um, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> the jumping around aerobic or acrobatic sword fighting suit thing. Anyways. More like traveling. The, the idea where they travel like just through space and not through time. Yes. Really. Which is remember what they did with the facility at some point. Yeah, exactly. That's what it reminded me of. Anyways, continue on Atari and or Atari. Atari. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to the title of the episode, Atari, Beep, can you just refresh everyone's memory or let some of us know, maybe for the first time, where this the title of, of the episode comes from in the game Ramsey's referring to in his conversation with Cole? Yeah, so the term Atari comes from the game Go, which is a board game. It was started in China um, prior to the Zhou Dynasty, which was uh, in B.C., and such. And uh, 
So it was invented more than 2,500 years ago, and it is believed to be the oldest board game that's continually played to present day. And the purpose of the game is to try to surround more territory than your opponent. Got it. Interesting. That's interesting, given what um what Deacon is up to <laughs> in this episode with taking over project, trying to take over Project Splinter. And then, what does the term specifically Atari mean, Bubs? Okay, so like in Japanese, Atari is the nominalized form of Ataru, meaning to hit the target or to receive something fortuitously. Um, the word Atari is used in Japanese when uh, a prediction comes true or when someone wins a lottery. So. Um, in terms of how it refers to go, it's for a situation where a stone or a chain of stones has only one liberty. So you can think of this like if you play chess, this is like check. So there's like only one Hail Mary thing they can do to maybe get out of this. Um, but it they could also just lose in the next round. So I think it's it's interesting, and I, I don't know if we're thinking about this the right way, but it at least is like fun thematically with what happens in the episode, in that mm-hmm. you know, we in the like sort of the original run through of the events of the episode lead to Ramsey being surrounded and we think dying. But the fortuitous event is that because the machine was damaged, (laughs) Cole gets a second (laughs) shot (laughs) instead of being sent back to Cassie. He gets sent back three days before and gets to gets basically a redo. Um, so there's a lot of like fun layers to think about just with the title of the episode and that game, which beef, did you mention that we're going to see that game be played in the later spearhead episode where Ramsey teaches Sam how to play? Yes. And so that's, we will again see this game because Ramsey will, we can't remember quite at this time if he talks about it or if he shows Sam how to play, but it will come up again, um, with Ramsey. And I'm actually curious now that we think about it. In the finale, the series finale, when we see the- That's what they're playing. That's Ramsey what Ramsey- and Sam. Mm-hmm. That's what Ramsey and Sam are playing. Yep. So we'll see it like in the sort of post-apocalyptic timeline with with Sam and Ramsey. But this game that the title references and what Ramsey references is the game that you see him playing with his son in the- Epilogue. So obviously this is a huge world building episode in terms of we've seen a lot of- the pre-apocalypse world in, in the show, but this is a really big showing us sort of, you know, Cassie kind of tees it up at the beginning of the episode where she wants to know more. She's like, tell me, like, tell me about the world. Tell me about yourself. And Cole's holding back. Um, and we will learn why he doesn't want Cassie to kind of know more of this side of him or at least who he used to be. But Cassie kind of teases it at the beginning of the episode. I don't know a lot about this world. And I'm frankly, neither does the audience. And so this episode does a lot to kind of introduce us to how how bad it is if you're living out there and you're not a member of the West Seven. <laughs> it really sucks <laughs> to come across them. Especially yeah. because they exist. Yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> more screwed because the West Seven is in But the also on Rewatch, it's amazing that this organization that we are first introduced to as kind of like a scourge on like the post-apocalyptic landscape is the organization that is responsible 
for bailing everyone out at Titan mm. <laughs> and being able to defeat Olivia. So it's kind of like the ultimate, if this episode is um, uh, kind of really getting into sort of like Cole's redemption story, it's just fascinating when you think about that West 7 is set up as like such a nefarious organization at the end of the, we're at, you know, by the end of the show, we're going to be freaking fist pumping when West 7 <laughs> shows up again. Um, so... If um one thing that I thought, you know, other than we can talk about, it's just so interesting how I think there are some layers to Deacon in this episode, but he really is kind of set up like in in the post-apocalypse, he's the big bad. You don't expect more from him, that's for sure. Yeah. Like like there's some layers, like definitely, I mean, it's interesting how he has sort of this soft spot for Cole, which we will later learn why. I mean, then I mean me in this episode you think it's just because he thinks he kind of sees um potential in Cole, but I mean what we'll learn later is because Cole reminds him of his brother. Yeah. Um but you know, in that you know, in the conversations that he has with Cole, where he's basically like, You and I see the world as it is now. I do think there's some interesting layers to kind of pick through when it comes to Deacon, but this is definitely an episode that has a big impact of making the audience feel like, oh, we hate this guy. <laughs> like, you know, he's off like murdering people. He wants Cole to murder, you know, the person he calls his brother. Like, um, as Ramsey points out, he enjoys it. Um, he enjoys killing people. Um, and he's good at it. So- <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's good at it. Um, it's important so- to love what you do. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, this episode is also a really important one for kind of setting up that it's essentially like, a. I mean, Cassie frames it in saying, tell me more about yourself. But this episode is kind of like a tug of war for Cole's soul between Ramsey and Deacon. Um, And it's interesting to think about all of the ways that that's going to spin out as these characters kind of go through their long term, like all season four character arcs. Um, But in this particular episode, you know, Cole Deacon is essentially I mean, I'm sorry, Ramsey is essentially acting as Cole's conscience. And and he doesn't he doesn't he's not as enthusiastic about joining the West the West Seven. That's for sure. Um, The scene in the alley when they are after they've robbed people um, and Deacon introduces that, you know, kill people or they'll be your enemy tomorrow, which we're going to hear Cassie say um, in season two. Um, Yeah, let them live, create an enemy. Yeah, let them live, create an enemy, which we're going to, you know, it's going to come back in that um, second episode when Ramsey and Cassie and Jennifer and Cole are all in the car and Cassie says that and Ramsey calls it out like that's that's a deacon saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of this whole Ramsey is kind of his like his Jiminy Cricket. In this episode, like, right, he's the conscience and Cole's going to say after he's killed Ramsey or thinks he has, I just killed the only conscience that I ever had. Um, so it's really interesting in terms of that, like, tug of war. Um, and I think one of the things that I found really moving watching it this time around is when Cole goes to Ramsey's tent with what we think is, I guess what he's... Do you guys think I mean he's seriously mulling over? I mean, he's goes in there with the intent of killing Ramsey. Do you guys think that's sort of where his head's at and he changes his mind during that scene? Ooh. Because the thing that struck me, we'll come back to that, but the thing that struck me was just how 
accepting Ramsey was of that, like handing him the knife and just basically being like, I know why you came here. So like, let's get it over with. Um, yeah, because that goes one of two ways. He's either doing it because he thinks he's lost Cole, or he's doing that to like call because him he knows and really make him stand up and make a decision. I, I'm yeah. I'm like inclined to think that it's he's calling his bluff because he knows Cole more than Cole knows his, himself. I think Cole- he thinks he's lost him because Cole's never been the kind of person to make his own decisions hmm. up till that point. Because it does seem like at least the way Aaron Stanford plays it. He's at least going in, and from Cole's perspective, with kind of, like, determination. And then he, it, there's sort of, like, you can almost see kind of the shoulders sag, and then he sits down, and it's kind of like, okay, then we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, so the way the scene is played makes it seem like Cole's actually making a decision in that scene, yeah. for sure. But that's interesting. And it's just also when you think about – how many iterations we are going to get of a face-off between Cole and Ramsey, whether it's later in this season um, when Ramsey joins the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and they face off an Atari or in the season one finale or um, in the second half of season two when Ramsey and Cole are at odds or uh, over what the mission should be, whether it's going to Titan or stopping the Paradox mm-hmm. or in the beginning of season three when it's whether to kill Cassie. This episode sets up what is going to be this like, can you say a Chekhov's gun <laughs> when it's like between two characters, but it's setting up this tension that despite how much these two characters love each other, when it comes to these like moral conflicts, they are constantly at odds, even though they're for different reasons. Um, it's re- like when you sit back and think about how all of this is going to play out, it really struck me watching this time. Like this is the, the Ramsey and Cole kind of the powder keg that's between them. I'm using a lot of gun metaphors. <laughs> but- <laughs> uh, on election day, really? Yeah. I think that part of it, though, boils down to just showing over and over the theme that it's not always as simple as just choosing the person you love, mm-hmm. especially when you have more than one person. Yeah. Right. And they're not the same people. You know, I mean, Cole's one is not Ramsey's one. Right. Because even and even in this episode, when Jones, when they think that they that projects that, you know, the facility has been taken and that Ra- Cole wants to go after Ramsey. And or I think at least head in that direction, even if he thinks he's dead. Um, and and Jones is like, no, you need to go back. You need to go back to Cassie. Um, and you can see that Cole is like kind of struggling with like what's the right decision to make. Um, but um, and I also love the scene between Jones and Cole when she's going to send him back and she puts the little it's like the first kind of Jones and Cole she kind of lets down her guard a little bit and isn't all business. Like she puts her hand on his shoulder and she, and he tells, when he tells her, no, my name's like, no, James. And she's like, Katarina. <laughs> it's such a good Jones Cole, like feels moment. It's so good. Go ahead and say it. <laughs> <laughs> she feel better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. So do we have anything else? Oh, oh. There's one big thing that we forgot to mention, which comes up again in this episode, that Mentally Divergent ends with Jennifer drinking the tea. Oh, right. And and she has the vision of 
the witness coming forward in the mask for the first time. Yes. And then there's like a great bit of like, it's kind of fun to, even though it's administered in a different way, when Deacon captures Cole and kind of slices his chest or his shoulder and he puts like this poultice, like this um, powder into the wound and that's what makes Cole hallucinate. And he says he got it from the daughter's. Which makes you wonder, like, what is that? Because it makes Cole hallucinate. And he has a series of hallucinations. He hears Jones. I think he might hear Jennifer. He sees Cassie. In the background, it's definitely a red forest. Yep. And his, like, kind of flashes of visions end with, I'm pretty sure you see the face of the witness with the mask in Cole's hallucinations with whatever that substance is that Deacon says he got from the daughters. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, an interesting... Even I, I had forgotten, I, I guess I always associate season one with sort of the tea visions with Cassie and Olivia. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have two, we have both, um, Jennifer and Cole within the first four episodes of the show having some sort of hallucinogenic, even though for Cole it's administered a different way where they're seeing the red forest and they're seeing the mask of the witness. Yeah. I think I initially wrote a lot of that stuff off because I just think, uh, you know, first time through, just thought of season one as like, okay, this is the plague thing. Like, what comes next? Yeah. So I, it's I, like, oh, hallucinating. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Like, that looks cool. But, you know, not realizing that it was <laughs> kind of the whole. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, for sure. It, before I went back and rewatched season one, I did think of it as much more like it's about it's about trying to track down the, the plague and investigating that. Mm -hmm. But there really are some like wonderful nuggets like that I, I don't even know how I didn't like I didn't really remember Jennifer drinking the tea really or at, at least at that point with the pallid man at the end of that episode or Cole hallucinating with a red forest in the background and seeing the mask of the witness like that's an episode four. <laughs> it's so. just I think it's so rare for people to weave such, I'll just say a seamless mythology. I mean, of course, there's errors, you know, continuity errors or whatever. Everybody has that. It's impossible uh -huh. to make something perfect. But I think that we're we're not used to seeing that on in our TV landscape anymore. So I don't think we expected it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's one thing now that the people who are binging it, you know, and we're like, you have no idea. It's all connected. You know, I mean, they're seeing things that we wouldn't have the first time through because we're like, okay, season one, let's see what this show is. Yeah, right. You know, and I just think it's a different. Uh, and they're mindset. also what and they're also watching it like much closer together. So I think the right. show yes. on binge, if you <laughs> are holed up in your house and you watch like the whole show in like two weeks, you're much more likely to remember those tea hallucinations. Whereas like I watched season one, I think like two years ago. Right. Um. So, I mean, I think it is a show and, and I'm, I'm curious if that will, I mean, we've already seen like a ton of people that are watching this on binge, but I think this is a show that is perfectly built for a binge watch. Agreed. Um, so I'm curious, like as time goes on and more people watch it in that context, if they'll appreciate the show even more because it, the binge watch does enable you to pick up on a lot of these details so much. Whereas back when you're watching season one and you had no idea that it was going to have this like sweeping mythology and you thought it really was just kind of about the plague. Um, maybe you're just kind of thinking, oh, that's like, you know, Cole hallucinated and no big deal. Right. Yeah. Um, did you guys have anything else sort of observations about this kind of battle for Cole's soul um, or sort of like 
I mean, it's interesting that like Ramsey and Deacon both kind of articulate different world visions, mm-hmm. you know, where Deacon is like, I see the world for what it is. And Deacon and, and, and Ramsey in his later conversation with Cole is like, if it should not be this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those are two very different ways to look out at, um, what you see and not liking it, like accepting it and just basically being like, fine, I'm going to go all in then on survival of the fittest or Ramsey trying to, you know, when Cole's like, look, we killed people. And he's like, so emphatically, like in the performances, like when we had to, yeah, Mm. this isn't the same as killing people you've already robbed or Cole, that guy, when he stabs Cole in the shoulder with the bottle, shard of the bottle, and, and obviously Cole's pissed and in pain, but the guy's running away. Mm-hmm. Like, he's no longer, at least at that moment, a threat, and Cole kills him anyway. Um, and the look on Ramsey's face is just, like, he is just, like, shattered <laughs> seeing his friend do that. I guess he also, I think what Ramsey also struggles with is there a difference? Because... Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it becomes a line that seems like very blurry. Like, yes, you killed so that you could survive, but like, is that enough? Like, is, is it really like drawing the line between you, you robbed someone and yeah, they're probably going to starve and die, but you didn't pull the knife and like stab them. Right. I think, and Ramsey does struggle a little bit with some self-righteousness. There's, I mean, well, well he doesn't struggle with it. He's totally fine with it, but <laughs> there's, I mean, I see that in him of just he always has a justification for the things that he does and and acts like that someone else doing those things, those same things might not have, you know, that same level of justification. And I'm not comparing these two things. I think they're very different. Mm-hmm. I just mean, you know, Ramsey, like as a character on the whole is is very much like, okay, but when I did it, here's why it was different. Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting, though, is because the narrative is constantly going to turn these, whatever these characters think their worldview is on morality and like right and wrong in these situations, the show's going to constantly put like the narrative's going to put them through a ringer to constantly turn that on its head. Right. (laughs) So when later, I mean, it is to me like it is tragic when you see a man like Ramsey who is clearly trying to draw you know, while living in basically anarchy, mm-hmm. he is not, he is not like Deacon and embracing it. He is trying to draw some lines and definitely probably more so than Cole. At this oh, point. absolutely. Right. So he's trying to draw lines where those, like, there are no lines now imp- imposed by society, but he's trying to at least draw some kind of line between right and wrong. But he's going to eventually, by the end of this season, throw all of that out the window and and basically doom the world to this landscape, which in this episode he's saying it shouldn't be this way because he loves his son. And it's kind of, I mean, if you think he's morally righteous or you think he's someone, you know, however you view it or someone, and it can be a little of both, someone who's trying to find a moral thread to live by, that is a tragic downfall for a character, right? Mm-hmm. And then the narrative's going to turn it on him again because once he loses his son, he's then going to be the person that stands in front of Cole and says, let me kill Cassie, one versus seven billion. Like, oh my God, right? <laughs> like, so um, 
it's really like once you like when I went back and I I like went back to watch this episode, it was an episode that like particularly like stood out to me, at least when I was like at the end of the show. But when you go back, there's so many different sort of character arcs and things that are set up with like the future moral dilemmas with Cole and Ramsey and Deacon. Um, And then when you if you just want to like sit back and have feels like these are three men that when they meet again, they are kind of in this state of not getting along <laughs> when they meet again at Titan. And the irony of them showing the West Seven tattoo. <laughs> Ride or <laughs> die. Ride or die. <laughs> when you think about this episode that they had to, like, Cole's choice was either to kill his brother or sneak off into the night is just like, wow, it's a lot. <laughs> it comes so far. They're kind of on a spectrum because I mean Deacon, it's like you said, Ramsey is very much like it's important to have a moral code. Deacon, whether he thinks, you know, that things are right or wrong, doesn't care. He's just like, I don't give a shit. It, I don't need to have a moral code. And Cole just like hasn't made his decision on what his may or may not be. Right. And quick quick question, just timeline. The other thing that struck me, they so Cole and Ramsey meet Deacon in 2032. Right. And then is the next flashback to 2035? Are they with the West Seven for three years? That sounds about right. But it's quite, it's, it's interesting because I think we can, listeners, let us know if we're wrong. I, I think I remember that it was three years that Cole is with, Cole and Ramsey are with Deacon. So they spend three years with Deacon and the West Seven. And then they leave. And Deacon is still pissed off in 2043 at Cole. Like, <laughs> the dude can hold a grudge. <laughs> and just, I, this isn't really Cole enjoying new food, but how many of you guys totally got faked out that they ate the dog? Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I hate whenever shows, like, tinker with the idea of killing animals. Oh my God. I don't know what it is. Like, I would have rather them shot, like, the guy next to them and eaten him than the dog. I right? think dogs like, are... Dogs are so pure. They're, like, relying on us and looking at me like, when are we eating dinner? So if you, like, the idea of, like, them all turning to the dog and be like, you're dinner, bitch. Like, it's just... <laughs> it's really disturbing. Yeah, but don't don't you think it's so interesting that, like, as as much as Cole, even before Cole and Ramsey, before joining the West Seven, are like, I did, like, we will hear throughout the show, and you saw, like, I will do, I did horrible things. They still wouldn't kill the dog. Yeah. <laughs> even though they said that they were, like, starving. We totally, like, they totally build it up to make you think that they killed the dog and they're eating it by the fire. Like, oh, God, we're so hungry. We're on our last rations. <laughs> so even then, there's still that. Maybe that's the only rule left in the post-apocalypse, that you cannot kill a dog and eat it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, they have a good banter, too, though, where he's like, you saw it. You're the one that has to shoot it. And he's like, what? since when did that become a rule? Like, they're both trying to argue over why they shouldn't have to be the one to do it. Oh my god, it's such a good That's the, the real Atari. <laughs> <laughs> it's also so great at the beginning just returning to the um, long-running Cole doesn't like to have a plan <laughs> when Ramsey's like, dude, we're not we're, we're not going in now. And he's like, okay, you're not but I am. And he just like goes, <laughs> right? And it's just like, oh man, this really was a thing all the way back <laughs> to season one. 
think that wraps up our discussion for those three episodes. There was one tidbit that came up in fandom discussion, and it related to something that came up for people that were watching The Haunting of Hill House. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm going to phrase it in a way so that it is not spoilery for folks that have not watched that show. But Megan Goeswine on Twitter, who, um, if you listen to our last podcast, she was the one whose favorite moment was Cassie going back to see her mom, and she'll be joining us later in our rewatch, she um, learned from The Haunting of Hill House that when someone, if you take old-fashioned clocks, like grandfather clocks, and you had to have actual like watchmakers or like craftsmen who would come and repair or service a clock, that they make what is called, like the record of repair is called a witness mark inside the clock. Mm-hmm. Which anyone who had watched Twelve Monkeys, um, I think, sat back and was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so witness marks in a clock to to document that you were there inside of a clock. Um, and I'm so you know, I had always thought of the witness as as like sort of you know, like the most obvious is somebody who is observing what's happening. Um, and but isn't necessarily participating, you know, in in the in a time like in an act or in a scene. So like the witness is somebody who's not generally directly participating in the scene. Um, but then also thinking about um, the marks inside of a clock and that those are witness marks. Um, really, like a lot of people were talking about that. And I thought that was a really fun nugget, and I'm curious if that at all was something that the writers had in mind as well, or if it's just sort of like a happy coincidence. Huh. That's a good question. Um, I, I think like when I think of it, I don't know how many people have listened to the podcast um, Shit Town or S Town or however they call it. Um, but the the um, main person that the podcast is about fixed clocks. And they talked a lot about witness marks and how it tells you like the inner workings of how everything works so that you can recreate it. So it totally does relate to the show. So I would love for that to be something that went into naming the witness. But who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that'll be maybe a good question. Because then at the end of the show that all the marks are erased. Right. 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 <laughs> oh, let, oh, my god. And gosh. it's unmade. I mean, the timelines are unmade. Right. That's so crazy. Moment of silence. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's what it sounds like when the show blows our mind in real time. Um, <laughs> We're just all looking at right. space. Yeah. <laughs> or time. Bubs, thank you so much for joining us. It was so fun to have you on. Is this the only time you're going to be on or are you on our schedule no later way. on? I think I've signed up for one other. Okay, great. Okay, do you remember which one that no is? No idea. Nice. Okay, we'll just be surprised. <laughs> um. So just a few reminders. Um, if you have a question for Mr. Metalis, please um, submit it on Twitter or at 12M Rewatch Pod or email it to word of the witnesses at gmail.com. Witnesses is plural. Um, our next episode, um, we will be covering um, 105, The Night Room. Such a huge episode um, for the mythology of the show. And, Jen- and one of the greatest uh, lines where Jennifer <laughs> says to Cassie, thank you, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a... 
such a rocky beginning for Jenny, Jennifer, and Cassie. Um, I mean, see how, like, a love triangle can be, like, just fine. Uh, so the next episode we'll be covering is 105 The Night Room. Um, huge episode for the mythology of the show. And Jen will be back with us to discuss that one. Um, in the meantime, get your questions in for Terry Metalis, and we will see you soon. <laughs>